Welcome to episode 60. Today, master teacher Lundy Smith joins us to talk about a student-led discussion method called the Harkness Discussion. Welcome to the Empowering Elves podcast. I'm Tan Nguyen, and the goal of this podcast is to serve language learners just like me and to empower passionate teachers just like you. The Harkness discussion is one of my go-to procedures in helping students develop their speaking, reading, listening, and even writing skills. Before I get into the how to do it, I want to show you the why. I think one of the truths is that students come to school to socialize with their friends more than to interact and learn from us. Like I'm starting to believe that that's one of the truisms of students. And if we could use their interest in socializing to guide our instruction, I think it'll become even more effective. Samantha Bennett said, the person doing the talking is doing the thinking, and the person doing the thinking is doing the learning. So I use the Harkness discussion to get students to collaboratively construct understanding of really difficult texts in a student-centered way. The steps of the Harkness discussion is to, one, to examine a stimulus. This means that they can read a text together, or an article together, or part of a novel together, or a poem or even a video, or an even experience together. The second step is to students generate their own questions. They can say, oh, these are my, I wonder why, how come? They can also generate their own opinions or their observations that they think are really important. This is the difference between, this is how we can make it become really student-centered because students are coming to discussion with their own questions instead of us saying, here are the discussions, here are the questions I want you to answer. Step three is the students sit facing each other in a circle, in a small circle. Uh, in the traditional sense, the Harkness discussion is for 12 students, but we can have discussions of small groups of like four to five or six around the classroom. But the key is that they're, they're, they have to be facing each other because how can we have a collaborative discussion if someone's looking at the back of someone's head? Think about boardrooms. Think about executive meeting rooms. Think about rooms where, where, where people come together and make decisions. They're usually not in rows. They're usually in circles facing each other. And so we really want to prepare students for that authentic seating arrangement as well. Now, the step four is for students to discuss their questions or their observations. And they pose one at a time. And so let's say, like, let's say that Jose has a question about Scar uh the Scarlet Letter, he poses that one question and then the people in his group take turn to try to help answer that question. And when they're ready, they move on to the next question. They don't have to finish all their questions, but the goal is just to get them to ask an authentic question based upon the text that they're reading. Get other students to go back to the text to figure out, hmm, I think I have a, an answer for you. And the kids who are constructing their, their answer together instead of it coming from the teacher. And the final step is to have students discuss the interactions afterwards. What did they notice? Were they a good participant? How did they use textual evidence? Were, did, were they polite in their conversations? Because we want them to be able to become citizens in the future who know how to engage in polite conversations.
Before we get to the interview, I want to share with you what a Harkness discussion sounds like. What you're going to hear next is a recording of my 28th graders talking about the role of beliefs in religion during their social studies class that was held virtually due to COVID-19. Notice how they're interacting with each other rather than me directing the discussion. It encourages uh, good behavior in the society so that many people can like do good things. To add on to that then, um, uh, <laughs> um, since, since they, they have a goal to do something good, so if they didn't have, um, if you didn't do something good, then you won't end up having in your next life, you won't ha be in such a high, you won't be in a high in high in the case system. Yeah. Maybe some sometimes they have like beliefs such as karma and rebirth because some people want to find the purpose of why being a good person is important and like why doing good to the society, like the, like helping the society is also good. To add on to Jaya, I think that like having a religion is better than well, like being carefree because it gives more of a meaning to life rather than like having to do whatever you want. You could follow a set of instructions that initiates you to do something that's like good. This is going better than I thought. You're doing actually what I'm hoping we saw in class. I see Satin and Julia talking and Salon said, yeah, Jaya and bye bye. And they're, they're trying to add to each other's tears. I think basing off what Pai Pai said, um, having the idea of keeping karma there will keep people in line and keep them for respecting the religion if they weren't going to in the first place. It has a small fear, or maybe not fear, but it just pushes people to stick in line if they have an idea of that. Um, Mr. Tan, can I like disagree and stuff or yes. just like add on? Of course you can disagree. Uh, okay, well, uh, um, to, I disagree with Alexander because I think, like, religion can, um, also, like, pit each other against, like, each other, um, even though they're from the same religion, people have different, like, opinions about it, uh, like, as it says that there is no clear founder, so technically, if you believe in, if you look at it from another perspective in Hinduism, uh, it can pit uh, it can pit each other, like it can pit it against each other. So even though a reincarnation is like a really big thing, sometimes people can think negatively about it. And even though they believe in Hinduism, they can still like do bad things against each other. Adding on to Satin, uh, I also agree with Satin because sometimes when, as like the article said, if you were born like a high class, like a male in the society, it is believed that you have done good deeds in the past, but if you were born as a lower class female, it means that you have done bad deeds in your former life. Now, on to the interview with Lundy Smith. Today we have Lundy Smith from Philip Exeter Academy. And I, so I worked with uh, Lundy. He was my mentor at a summer school program 13 years ago. And I was lucky enough to be in part of his literature class and support his kids and just to learn from him. And that's why I learned about the Harkness discussion method. 
but I won't go into that. That's why I have you here. So Lundy, would you introduce yourself briefly about like your context? Yeah. Hi, I'm, I'm Lundy Smith and I've been a private school teacher for, I'm going on 34 years. Um, I grew up in Oregon and then went to school in Southern California and started my teaching career in the Central Coast of California in private school in 1986 and have taught in California, Switzerland, Delaware, and I moved to Exeter in 2001 wow. and I've been here ever since. Tell us about like, what are the, who are the students I go to like in Exeter type school? Um, it's a really interesting thing. It's, it's one of those schools where I think if you live in the town of Exeter, everybody, thinks, oh my gosh, it's the school with all these rich kids. But in, the opposite is true. It's 47% um, of the kids are on full financial aid. So we have a, uh, we actually have a very diverse student body. We wow. have um, kids from over 75 different countries. We have kids from 48 different states. But we have kids from all kinds of economic um, different backgrounds. We have kids who are full pay, but you know, again, 47% of the kids are getting a full scholarship to the school, which is, you know, pretty impressive when you think about there's not many places where you bring together kids who will come from so many socioeconomic different backgrounds. Right. That's why, because it's, it, I know Exeter is considered uh, like one of the Ivy Leagues for high schools. And so because of its gigantic endowment, it, it has resources just like Harvard, where it can provide lots of scholarships for kids. And that's why it's really a great institution. Can you tell us more about, because uh, I know the Harkness started at, at Exeter. Can you tell us about the history of the Harkness discussion method? Yeah, I'm not going into too much detail, but um, in 1930, Edward Harkness, who actually worked for the um, Standard Oil Company, the Rockefeller Company. And somehow he met our the current head of Exeter, and he mentioned to him that I would, you know, he was interested in funding an educational process that would allow what he called the C student, the C boy, to be able to um, have an impact in the classroom. You know, that the, the, the C student would just sit back. And so I think our school, he offered money and our school came up with a couple of proposals. And when they came forward, he said, no, that's not good enough. And ultimately, the headmaster of the day came up with this idea with, in work with Edward Harkins to come up with this idea that we would put, create tables with one teacher, 12 students around a, a circular or, you know, oblong table where everybody would, you know, talk about their ideas. And the idea was, it was a place where even the, the most average student could put forth his ideas and be a part of the class. Um, so that's how it started. And so it was, it was radical in the day because in, the, in that day and age, in 1930, Exeter, most of the classrooms would have, say, a, a classroom with 30 desks, all yes, in rows, yes. with one teacher lecturing. And all of a sudden to say, okay, no, we're going to switch it all over to classrooms of 12 kids with a teacher. So it meant 
they had to build new classroom buildings. They had to build new dorms. Um, they really went in, and I think his gift, you know, in terms of its value, um, I think it was three million dollars, and I think they say it's worth, you know, and uh, you know, actually, it's like sixty million dollars or eighty million dollars in today's funds. Wow. I know, and I know Harkness gave money to. He also gave money to Lawrenceville School, St. Paul's. Um, to all these different schools to try to try to change the educational system in America. And it really did change, because I'm thinking about that, how long ago it was. It was basically, you're right, just rows, straight rows, and the little desk, and then the teacher talking at students. And then the, the radical change, like, what, 80 years ago, was that now people are just sitting in a, uh, in a circle facing each other, which is very similar to like a boardroom or an executive room where, where people are, or a conference where people are, looking at each other and talking about it. And that's what, like, that's why I, when, I, when I was working at, with Teach for America in the summer and I came to Exeter, and I was like, I need to, when you say this is for your C student, I was thinking of my A students who I was failing, like uh, not failing them like grade-wise, but like not meeting their needs of critical thinking and high, high performance. And so that's why I went to Exeter. And when I left Exeter, that summer program, I was like, this is my answer. And so I love yeah. it. Would you be able I'm sorry, go ahead. You want to say something? I was going to say, you know, the, the greatest moments around the Harkness table are when you have a student teach another student. Yes. Or, or you have that aha moment where they're discussing something and they all of a sudden, some kid has a breakthrough and a, and a great idea. And it, because of that, they remember the moment better. The, the moment sinks in into their memory and it becomes a genuine moment of learning rather than something that's spoon fed to them. It, where in, in the term, it's like student, super student, student centered. What? Yeah, oh, absolutely. So, so we, for example, I was teaching a class this past week where somebody said something, somebody asked a question in my class. We were in a, an Andre abuse story, and somebody asked a question, and it was dead silent for two minutes. And I just sat there. And two minutes feels like a lifetime until finally some kid, you know, kind of fed into it. But it was this this moment you could feel the kid saying, I'm unsure. I don't want to say anything. I might be wrong. But you, you have to. One of the things about being in the Harkness classroom is you have to be ready to let kids um, feel the weight of silence. Yes. I remember that magazine when I was reading where someone was talking about the Harkness method, where it's like kids perching on little branches of comprehension and just waiting. Yeah, and that's I was, great. What a beautiful yeah. analogy for that. So we've talked about the history of the Harkness. Well, we have two ways we can talk about. Well, would you like to talk about like what a Harkness table looks like, what a, a, how to facilitate a Harkness discussion, or like what? Or the other way is why should we? Why should teachers consider using the Harkness discussion in their classes oh um either one i i think you know i'll use let's go with why teachers should use it okay. and I'll, I'll go back to something where um and I'll, I'll just go to something like shakespeare for example you know why should we teach shakespeare shakespeare died you know what 400 and you know 16 406 years ago why should we teach shakespeare and i and i think one of the one of the great things about Harkness is I teach Shakespeare, and I and I always say to my kids is 
this is your Shakespeare. And I, I just did Hamlet with my seniors and Twelfth Night with my 11th graders. And watching them try to put the plays in the context of their own lives. Yes. And one of the things they always want to do was say, oh, but back in those days. And I say, no, 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 no. None of you were born in the 16th or you know 17th century. <laughs> so let's can that. What? do these words mean to you? And so, you know, it becomes this idea that this is your Shakespeare, it's not my Shakespeare. And we kind of work along those lines of trying to find meaning for things in terms of their own lives. And that's what makes literature relevant. And that's what you say, that's why literature is still alive. And rather than some kind of history project and saying, you know, when, when Hamlet is trying, you know, kind of considering the whole you know, idea of whether to act or not to act and what, what is the purpose and this kind of existential crisis. I mean, my gosh, who doesn't go through that in their day-to-day -day life as adults at these, in this day and age? So it's trying to get them to understand that these words. The only reason I'm teaching this to them is because it has a universal time and that it applies to them as much as it applied to the audiences who watched it back in 1608. So you're saying like Harkness, you, the way, you, why you use Harkness is because it helps kids find meaning in literature that makes them relevant for their own life right now. And that happens through student discussion instead of teachers telling kids, this is the meaning. It's saying, what are you getting out of the meaning of this text? Right, and I and I don't want to. Sometimes people say, "Oh, that sounds really touchy feeling," and they just come up with anything they want. And it's like, well, no, because they, we also ask them to be very rigorous about addressing the language, and so it's not anything goes. It's it's saying, "No, look at what the author has said. Look at the connotations of the words that he has used or she has used." and apply those to your ideas behind the play. And, you know, it, and it, it's hard because, you know, part of it is, I think so many kids are used to saying, well, you're the expert, tell me what it means. And, <laughs> and I want to say, well, no, you, based on what you know, tell me what it means to you. And, you know, and but it's not, it's not all, it's also, it involves having the kids do work on their own. I mean, I, I'm constantly having the kids go to the Oxford English Dictionary online to look up the meanings of words. I'm constantly having them try to put things into context. So they, they start to form their own kind of analytical ideas and background on how to think about literature. So when, so, so let's talk about that. Like what does, a, what does prep look like for a Harkness discussion? What does it look like during and what does it look like after? I guess the steps. Oh, those are good questions. Yeah, and it. So okay, for so, it's there's this always this kind of concept that some kids can fake it, but one of the things I always ask them to do is um, we we work with our especially on our younger kids, we work with um, how to annotate texts. Yes. So I will actually with my my sophomores, my freshmen. Even with my even with my um, 11th graders, sometimes 
I will actually have them turn their books over to me, and I will look at how they've annotated, and I'll actually give them examples of my own annotations to show them how to annotate a text. And our homework assignments will tend to be kind of analytical moments where I'll give them a passage or ask them to find a passage on their own and look at this really at specific, the very specific level of the language. Um, I just did a, um, I was just doing the abuse stories, for example, and we, I was having the kids look at adverbs. I was saying, I want you to look at the adverbs and just tell me what happens when you take the adverb out of the sentence versus what does the adverb add to the sentence? And what does that tell you about the adverb? And it was really fascinating how to have them look at a, at a sentence at that level. And, and I always say to them, in a short story or a poem, a single word must be necessary. If not, it shouldn't be in the, in the text. Yes. So we, we're constantly... You know, I, I love that moment where I'll just have them look at a single word and say, tell me about that adverb. Why is it essential? What happens when we take it away? So you're annotating for specific purposes before oh, this. Oh, yeah. yeah. But I also, that's teaching them how to be really critical readers. Yes. And it's also teaching them how to think of, of as reading as writers. Because when they we a lot of our writing is based on the personal narrative, um, and so we're tr teaching our kids how to be writers using the reading that we're doing as models, and they say, "Okay, F. Scott Fitzgerald loves adverbs," and I always tell you, "Don't use ad adverbs. Adverbs adverbs aren't your friends. Why does he get to use adverbs? What do the adverbs do?" And that's the kind of thing that makes them really look at their writing and in their in context of their reading and say, Oh my gosh, this is, this is not accidental. This is really purposeful. So it kind of becomes like um, reading as a process to help kids write in the future. It's helping them Absolutely. become analytical as they analyzing reading. They're really applying that being conscious of every single word, every single punctuation mark, every decision they produce on, paper or text comes from reading absolutely and you know it's the other thing is i was mentioning to you i think before we started recording you know the the, the novel exit west by motion hamid which is filled with these uh, moments where he writes you know almost page-long sentences or two page-long sentences wow. And having the kids say, when they're reading it aloud, all of a sudden realize, oh my God, this is one sentence. And I'll say to them, yeah, let's talk about that. Why is it, why do we have a 400 word sentence when he could have punctuated all the different times? And that's when you get kids really thoughtfully looking at language and also thinking about syntax. So it's, you know, it, that's what I love about the Harkness deal that I'm doing. So kids start with annotating, analyzing, writing, and then what do they do when they finish? Or so, the, so that's the before Harkness, and then year in the in the in the fresh. So we we actually have a really lockstep program for our freshmen for the first two terms they're here. 
in the first term, we every all the freshmen are on a pass fail system, so we don't we want them not concerned about grades, but concerned about you know the process of learning. Yes, uh, and we will actually do kind of meta conversations with them in which we grade discussions. So they'll have a discussion and then we'll break it down and talk about what worked well, what didn't work well. And we try to teach them um, things like different types of questions, questions to understand, questions for, questions for further understanding versus the fake question, which will be just throwing a question out there to try to get somebody to respond to them. And, and those are the like, well, what did you think about the fact that this happened? And I will often turn to those kids and say, well, you tell us first what you thought about it, and then we'll respond. But it's it's the, we want them to be able to say, when somebody kind of dissects a moment and just say to them, well, what did you mean when you said blank? So we're trying to teach them how to be really critical of ideas and do it in a way that is non-confrontational and you know kind of this idea that it's okay to disagree and have these conversations where kids argue but at a level that never kind of goes above the idea that we're having a civil conversation about literature so it's a very locks i mean we we really work hard in the first term they're here to monitor their discussions and teach them what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. And then we build upon that in their sophomore year because we actually bring in another hundred new students in the sophomore year. And in, I, I wrote up a very kind of, it's a two page um, self evaluation uh, rubric, which I have the kids give themselves mark for not only their preparation, but their participation in classes. So then I can have them fill out the form and like highlight what they do well, what they don't do well, and also identify things they need to work on. And then they write me a letter and say, you know, dear Mr. Smith, I need to work on this. These are my weaknesses. And it allows me to write back to them and say, yes, you're right. You're not doing this. You're not doing this. You're not doing this. Or, you do this really well. Let's work more on this. So it's, I, I would have to say we, in our first two years at the school, we are very deliberate and trying to build what we would say positive models for, you know, classroom discussion and classroom analysis and talking with one another in a way that is non-threatening in a way that is, um, polite and, um, leads to further discussion rather than shutting discussion off. Oh, I love that. You're really teaching kids to be like citizens, like collaborative people who are using nonviolent language and, and trying to right. construct ideas together. Because the, I heard a quote that said, like the, you get hired for your hard skills, but you get fired for your soft skills. Yeah, and I think in, especially in America and it's in the you know, since we've hired, since we've elected our last president, the the level of discourse has sunk to a new level. Yes, it's not good. But being able to say to kids, "I agree with you," but 
or I disagree with you, but in doing it in a way that's civil, that allows for real conversation, yes. that doesn't, doesn't devolve into emotions, is so important. Right. And it is so valuable for these kids going forth into the world. Right. Because conversation is the center of a democratic life. Oh, absolutely. Right. absolutely. I love that. I also love that you talked about like when you like taking your ninth graders in and modeling with them and like saying, okay, let's have a discussion. And then at the end of it, you break it down. You say like, what did you notice about the discussion? What did you like about it? What went well? So that you really were having them reflect on like, not just saying have a discussion and then that's it to have a discussion. But it's really like, what are the qualities of a quality discussion? Yeah. And it, it, it's kind of, it's a little bit, um, you know, it feels a little tedious at first for the kids, but it pays off such big dividends. The other thing we've started doing is with all of our new students, and this goes with all of our new freshmen, our new sophomores, and our new, uh, our new um, juniors and our new seniors, is we actually have um, these moments where we bring together kids who've been at the school for a number of years and we make them watch a Harkness discussion. We actually, we have this new theater and the kids come in and they have a Harkness discussion and we make the new students watch a Harkness discussion so they can see how our returning students do it. So when they go into their first classes, it's not completely foreign to them and they can get kind of a sense of the vibe of polite discourse before they start their first class. So then what, what is what is this, the teacher's role in a Harkness discussion then, during it or before it? That's a great question. And some, you know, and, 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 you know, some people have said, oh my God, you're like the potted plant. You just sit there and it's like, um, I like I like the analogy that one of my colleagues came up with is, I'm like a traffic cop. And uh. that I, I sit there and I make sure I like put up my hand when some boy's talking too much or I, I, I recognize the kid who tried to say something who got shut off and I'll say, no, no, let's go back to what she had to say. Um, and so I, again, I'm like a traffic cop and I'm constantly trying to monitor because some kids get so excited. They'll start talking over the tops of one another and I'll say, no, 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 one at a time. And in the best Harkness class, I really don't have to do much other than no, wait, you, now, you know, kind of the allow them a way to let their ideas out without talking over the top of each other. So our role, it seems like in a Harkness discussion is to uh, monitor behavior, but not provide the questions. The kids are coming out with the questions. And right. the, and the... Although, although I'll offer follow-up questions sometimes. Yes. When, when there's a question that comes out that really isn't answered, and I'll just say, can we, and I'll, I'll try to do first, can we return to that question? I don't think we really answered it, but if I have to, I'll try to step in and do work. And, it, and it's, it's not all a free-for-all, because it, there are also moments where when I'm teaching poetry, and I'll say to the kids, okay, who understands I am a pentameter? You just can't assume that they're all going to get it. So I, there are moments when you really have to say, okay, I'm going to teach you how iambic pentameter works, or I'm going to teach you 
difference between a sestina and a pantoum. You know, there are moments. It's just not like okay, free form. Let's come up with our own idea about what meter is. So right. there are rules that I, you know, as a teacher, I have to teach them. Um, but in the most part, when we're getting into their own ideas and analyzing, I try to stay out of the way and let them figure out what their reading is of the text. So, so when you, so when you, when they come to class, do they, do they provide the questions? Like, how do you organize that? couple of different things I do. It depends. Um, sometimes they have a writing the night before. We'll just ask them, you know, like my uppers will often say, you know, choose a passage of the text and do a, a, you know, a brief analytical passage. Another common thing I'll do is have them come into class and say, all right, um, go to the board and write up a question, either of something you didn't understand or a passage that you think you really is essentially you need to look at. So it becomes this kind of open forum for saying, these are the things we found interesting. These are the open questions we had. Can we talk about them? So in a lot of times, by giving the kids the power to come up with questions, I can kind of sit back. And, and again, I'm always, I'm a, again, I'm always the traffic cop and um, <laughs> sit back and say, oh, that's, it. that's interesting. Right. We'll come back to this question or and I think the hardest thing I had to learn when I first started doing this is, you know, I'd, I'd be teaching novels that I knew like the back of my hand and I would just be sitting there thinking, Oh my God, I can't believe they didn't talk about this moment. And what I learned, and especially with the kind of help of my, some of my mentors in the department was just let it go. And inevitably, what would happen is you you think they missed something, but if you gave them time a day later or two days later, some kid would say, I want to go back and look at that moment. And you would realize that they didn't miss it. They just didn't bring it up. Oh, and okay. if you let them do it themselves, it's so much more meaningful. And I, and I think it goes back to that idea of of any kid if you have a parent saying, let me show you how to do it versus the kid, the parent telling them how to do it, letting the kid figure it out on their own, it's going to be so much more meaningful when the kid figures it out on his own. So then when you, had, when you talked about that experience, I had a question of like, how is, the, how is the way you teach with the Harkness different than the way you taught before? Oh my gosh, I would say, um, well, it depends. I've, you know, I've been at, you know, four different schools over my career, one term in Switzerland, seven years in California and, you know, seven years in Delaware. And, and in Delaware, we were, we had Harkness tables, but it was Socratic. Yeah. So I would come in and I'd have all the questions ready and it would be like, okay, tell me about this. And I would have, I would be looking for certain answers and all my questions would be, pointed towards getting my answers and now it's like okay i'm just gonna let them see where they go and i'll tell you here's the difference when i used to teach hamlet at other schools i would go through hamlet in two weeks it took me six weeks to get through hamlet this last this fall because it would be we got to act three scene two and the kids were just like 
we were diving into language and we spent almost a we spent a week on one scene because they kept on coming up with new questions and new thoughts about something and rather than saying okay i need to march through this text in a certain day or day i now have this kind of liberty to say well i'm going to let them work through the text at their own level at their own rate and so i don't have to worry about saying I'm going to finish this, finish this, finish this, so I can do this. And that, I, I, I understand that. That's a, that's a huge luxury that a lot of teachers don't have. And the ability to spend you know a month and a half on Hamlet, where in other schools I've taught it in two weeks or three weeks, um, that's a you know I, I'm blessed to be able to be able to do that. Right, because it sounds like you're teaching process instead of content with Harkness. Yeah. Yeah, and also, but I also want to recognize that sometimes kids just take longer. They say, we really want to look at this or my gosh, we can, we didn't even look at this scene. Can we look at these speech for tomorrow? And those, it's an amazing, it's an amazing moment where you spend two days on one soliloquy and, and the kids feel like they haven't even done it yet. Wow. And, that's um, that's exciting, and you know, and part of part of what I want to impart too to the kids is, you know, I think so many kids get out of high school and think, oh, I've done Hamlet. No, you haven't done Hamlet. You've read Hamlet for the first time. <laughs> yes. You know, I've read Hamlet twenty-five times, and I'm still picking things out that I don't understand. And this idea that, that, that these texts are something that will be in will be revealed to them on a single reading um, based on some what somebody tells them is so wrong. And I think it doesn't do them a service in college. And I think I've talked to, I've talked to friends who teach at the college level and they, you know, they have, they have seniors from high school who come their freshman year and think, well, I don't need to do this. I've already done it. Like, no, you've just started to do it just started to understand or you just started to study something right it's like a first read it's the second right. read that helps true study is digging in at a whole new level um, you know and i don't want every not every kid's going to be able to do that but the kids i have to make them say you know it's like you know if you want to be a doctor you don't say well i've done biology in ninth grade i'm done no right there's so much you don't understand that you need to delve into to be really good at your profession and so that's the same thing with literature or writing there's always improvement that you can you know strive for i love that it's going back to the process and i love how you right. talked about like socratic seminars as answer teachers questions where the harkness is what are your questions and let's answer your questions and how student centered yeah. it is. I love it. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, so, you know, const, one of the things like, I mean, I started a bunch of classes last week with the kids came in they sat down and I said, so what do you think? And we go and it, it's fun. And it, and sometimes because I've given them a writing assignment, I'll say, well, if you don't have anything, what did you write about? And you know, in this in the digital age, we have a you know a, a learning management system. So in some cases, I'll read their 
journal entries before class and I'll some kid will come in and I'll say that was super interesting you want to tell us the, tell the class about what you wrote on for today's class and it's it's another way of, that I will sometimes use to pick out the kid who's not talking a lot or you know maybe give props to a kid who may be feeling a little that oh my gosh what I have to say isn't important so I'll just say gosh you know Tom wrote something really interesting today's class. Tom, you want to share that with us? And, you know, that, it just gives me all kinds of ways to try to get the kids to listen to another student and respond to another student. So, so that brings me to another question. That's really great. You said there are, is there's one teacher per 12 students. How do, the, how do all the students participate? Is that, a, is that a bigger number? What do you notice about that? Because a lot of the teachers are going to be listening from public schools. So they're going to think, oh, 30 kids. Yeah, you know it's it's really interesting. One um, because we we do Harkness Institutes with public schools, and one of the things I would what I would advise if you have a class of a lot of kids is I would break them into groups, and I would say because it's not so much important that you're at the center of things, but I would say, okay, if I have thirty two kids in a classroom, I'm going to break them into two three groups of 10 or a 10 11 and 11 and i'm going to say to them and i'm going to give them i'll say okay you guys come up with the essential question of tonight last night's reading if they have desks or whatever i would get them into small groups of 10 or 11 each <clears throat> and then i would just wander the classroom and listen to what they have to say because you know and that's something i do all the time with even my class of 12 where i'll say all right Let's um, let's get into groups of three and come up with an essential question: what you thought was the most important point of last night's reading, and you just listen to the kids, and they're 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 amazing. And I'll I'll sit there and I'll listen, and I'll and I'll usually start I'll usually start the class by saying, "I was so intrigued by what you know Bill was saying over there because I heard him." Um, so. It's a way the kids to get them all talking to one another. So break them into groups. If you have 30, break them into three groups of 10 or five groups of six. The smaller the group, the more likely they're going to be able to communicate with one another. And then you bring them all back together and you say, let's hear what you had to say. Let's report back. I love it. It's just a way of in, engaging the kids in conversation. Yes, and that's why I like. I'm, I'm thinking about the public school teachers that are listening to the podcast, and they're thinking, "Oh my goodness, I I have 32 kids." And what you said is exactly right. It's about having them break, breaking them down into smaller little groups, after modeling of this many many times of modeling, and having Harkness discussion as a as a like a fishbowl, and then having them break up into small groups. That's a great idea. And it's not and it's not busy work. No. And I, I think so many people think, oh, my gosh, it's just busy work because kids are talking about themselves. If you teach them how to do it, the kids are going to be so much more interested in what their peers have to say yes. than the old person at the front of the class has to say. But it, it's, it takes training. I mean, I just, I mean, honest to God, you need to, if in the beginning, you need to prompt them. You need to give them questions. You need to give them tasks until they're at the point 
where you don't have to do that anymore and they know what to do. Right. Where and, and that's the same thing we do with our classroom, right? We, we teach the kids how to form good questions, how to come up with textual proof. So, I mean, we just don't start with freshmen and say, okay, tell us what you think. I mean, that would be, I mean, my God, with freshmen, it would be a, you know, a nightmare. It would be a, we, you know, they, who knows what they would talk about? But we, you know, we build them towards that moment, and, and, it, and it's, you know, everything from doing what I call a budget a budget tour of a chapter or something. And I'll say, okay, I want you to identify the three most important um, sentences from the text, and then give me the the two most important words of the text, and then give me, you know, I make them identify certain things, and then support their ideas and say why do you think that's the most important word of the text and once you start doing that with kids to give them kind of parameters of how to think about literature and talking to one another they'll start to you know disagree with one another and start being critical of one another's ideas which is what we want in the you know in the in the best possible world so as you're talking, I'm just hearing the word like scaffolding, scaffolding the interactions in the beginning. And like when you Absolutely. said prompting, helping them become more independent throughout the year. Uh, but the goal is not the warning. Like we should not want teachers to say, okay, have kids sit in a small circle, have kids have questions and let them go. And that's like not what we're saying. We're saying like we need to model that first. We need to scaffold interactions so that students can get to become yeah. independent in the future. I love that. How do you get them to move beyond comp? Like when I do my Harkness, I notice that my fifth graders are doing it now, and they, I notice that they talk at the at the recall level. Are they just trying to figure out what the, the text mean? Like the comprehension. Yeah, that, I mean, I think you know, well, part of that is so much is based on their kind of intellectual development and maturity, um, and you know, I see this, I see this a lot with boys and girls. The difference between especially with the lower grades when I'm in the ninth and 10th grade, I'll see girls who are ready to really take a different intellectual step than the, some of the boys are. Um, but you know, that, that is, is so dependent upon the kids you have in the class in so many ways. Um, gosh, I wish I had an easy answer for that. Um, and I think the only, I think it really comes down to writing, <laughs> um, to have them say, okay, you know, I want you to analyze this in terms of telling me what is important in, in your own terms and what words and what images can support your ideas. And I think sometimes writing really is the best way to get kids to um, take their thinking to the next level because it, it makes them slow down makes them think about each word and it makes them struggle in a way that they don't have to when they're speaking okay so let's move towards the the end of because you, you're talking about writing now let's talk about the end of a harkness when after the harkness discussion has been facilitated by kids what do you do next well, in, in the best case we move on to the next day and um the, it's easy to say when Harkness is going best is it's that moment where you just let things go. And by the time you finish the book, 
the kids are referring back to moments they missed um, in saying, oh my gosh, I now realize that this moment was this. And it, it, it's true intellectual discovery on their part rather than me saying, let's look back at this and see how important the foreshadowing was at this moment. Um, and then from that standpoint, you know, I, I try to get them to reflect on what they've learned through their writing, whether it be a personal essay or a personal narrative. And, you know, in the older the senior groups, we, you know, our writing process was really built on the personal narrative from freshman and sophomore year. And then we move into personal essays and then analytic. We're always doing analytical work at the table when we're looking at literature. But the writing, we really reserve that for the end because we're trying to develop their voices through their personal writing all the way through so they can talk about how they feel about things, how they see things, how they interpret things through their own voice. The, yeah, that's the good question. I mean, for example, I just finished, finished I just, you know, coming into Christmas break, I just finished a collection of short stories with my uppers and they're all writing personal kind of essays, but they're, they're analytical in the same way in which I'm asking them to take a look at the short stories and apply them to their own lives. And my seniors, I'm taking the novels in the film class. So they, they had to look analytically at a film, talk about the okay. film as they viewed it in terms of their own lives. So I'm, I'm constant. The writing, I'm always trying to make the writing personal and how they react to something rather than something that's saying, you know, this kind of third person analytical in the world one believes, you know, no, I want you to respond to something on the deepest personal level possible. I, I don't it. know if that answers your question. It does. It, it's, well, you're, you're having them write. You're having them like, well, on the, if, the day's finished. That you continue with the with the Harkness discussion in the next day. It's, it's but it's the same text. It's just a different passage. It's, there's different next chapters. But but you're also talking about like writing as um, reflecting, and then you also talked yeah. about it before. Like for your freshmen, you also you often reflect on like, hey, how did the conversation go? What did we do well? What moves right. did we do that helped the conversation flow? So you're having them become analytical and metacognitive of their own behaviors and actions. That's great. Absolutely. And, you know, one of my colleagues one time said, if, um, if we can read everything they're writing, they're not writing enough. Yeah, I love that. That's a great line, and it's true. And, you know, and, and a lot of times I'll have the kids just write before, for five minutes or ten minutes from, you know, at the beginning of class, and I'll just – and sometimes I'll make up really weird – prompts like imagine you're a salmon spawning upstream what is it like <laughs> and i'll just i'll just throw out as many different prompts to get them thinking and writing in different ways before we start class and i find that's always it just activates their brains in a in a whole new way um and sometimes i can really i can zero them in i'll say all right i want you to look at this one sentence from last night's reading Let's talk about it. And then you get these great kind of discussions, kids arguing. Sometimes it'll be completely whimsical. Um, and, and just 
And I'm trying to just spark them because the other thing that's happening with these kids is they're, you know, they're coming from a history class, a, a chemistry class. You know, they, they're, they're, they're moving. Their day is super long here. I mean, we go to class from eight to six. Oh, my um, goodness. With breaks in between. Yeah. And so they, 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 they kind of wash up onto my shore sometimes like, oh, my God, just give me a break. <laughs> and so giving them a chance to just kind of reflect on their day will sometimes get, recharge their batteries enough to have a you know, human conversation with me. Yes, I love that. What do kids, how do kids respond to the Harkness discussion? It's interesting. Um, some kids take right to it, and we have what things called the Harkness Warrior, which we have to, we have certain kids where we have to say, you're talking too much, you're interrupting kids, you're, you're answering every question. Um, one, of the, one of the reasons I've spent a couple of years in China is, you know, I, went over, I started going to China in 2006 and working, I worked with some teachers in Beijing and, and Shanghai was the idea of Confucian learning is hard for some of the kids because they've always been told they receive information. Yes. And all of a sudden telling them, no, you're going to share your thoughts and your opinions is so foreign. So a lot of times it's, um, it's actually working not only at the class level, but on the individual level to teach kids, you know, the ways in which they can interact with their peers. And I, I have this, I have this, again, I have this rubric where I have the kids, I give them what I consider the, um, the A, B, C, D and failing attributes of say a discussion participant and then the same grading scale for what I would say are the, are the um, preparation aspects. So I'm trying to teach them how to say, these are the, what you need to do to be an A student to pre prepare for class or a B student. But these are the A things that you need to do. And then I'll say, I want you to evaluate yourself. Oh, that's cool. So you, you may have a kid who's, you may have a really quiet kid who can say to you, yeah, I'm sorry, I never talk. I never find a way in, but in preparation, I'm doing all the A work. And what that allows me to do is then have a conversation with the kid. And I actually have them write me a letter. And they write me a letter and said, you know, dear Mr. Smith, I'm, I don't speak in class, but I'm doing all of this stuff. And it allows me to kind of write back to them and affirm the good things they're doing and right. talk about how to do better on the stuff they need work on. That is, would you be able to share the, those, those rubrics with us? Yeah, absolutely. That'd be cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd be, be happy to. Um, yeah, when, I, when we get it done here, I will send you a, um, a PDF of my my rubric. Oh, that'd for be great. And preparation and um, participation and preparation. Oh, that's, that, I, th I know the readers, the listeners would really appreciate that. Okay, so I have just two more questions, and that'll take us to the hour, but... Um, in a nut, in if you could put it in a sentence, what is the main takeaway that you want readers, uh, listeners, to take away from this discussion about Harkness? Yeah, it, it empowers students, which I think makes them more, you know, whatever say, more happy. But um, the empowering of students with their own ideas makes them more engaged listeners. Yes. Learn. Yes. And 
So you're saying like Harkness is a student-centered discussion method where kids uh, get their voices heard. Yeah, yeah and I, I'll tell you, I just this is completely anecdotal, but one of the things I constantly hear, you know, you, you, I write these college recs for kids. Kids go off to college, and one of the things they complain about is like I get to college, and I miss being able to share my ideas. Yes my classmate yes. and I constantly hear that and and I think what we what we also discover is our kids who go off to college they're hugely successful because they learn and think in a different way they're they're constantly questioning and trying to come up with ideas and thinking about the literature or the or the math problems or the physics problems or the history problems right. I also think it's it's a great model going forward in their lives in which to be a successful business person, it's all about talking, listening, and, you know, coming to consensus. Yes, it's like constructing meaning, taking information and constructing meaning from it with others. I love that. But also, but also, being, able to, but also being able to sit and listen to somebody who has a completely different view than you do. Yes. And, deal with that in a civil manner yes. in, an, in an intellectual manner. And I think, you know, that's some, again, citing our own country is I think so much of what's gone wrong in the last three years is that people no longer are having intellectual conversations. They're having emotional conversations, which aren't valuable. They're just, they don't go anywhere. So you're really preparing our future leaders then? <laughs> I hope so. I hope. Got it. <laughs> okay, so my final question, my final uh, would be, it's, it's, not a, it's like a, like a three-tier question. It's called um, traffic light teaching. So it doesn't have to be about Harkness, but uh, would you tell the listeners a green light is something that all teachers, as much as possible, should do? Uh, a yellow light is something that she could start oh, questioning. My, and then a red light is like something that your students. I'm sorry. The thing we should all do is respect our students. Yes. Respect, respect their ideas and respect the, the, where they're coming from. And that's the greatest thing I would say to people is that don't expect all kids to be coming to your class with the same background or the same ideas and, and recognize that these these kids all have different histories and different backgrounds. Respecting your kids. It's all about relationships, right? Absolutely. It's all about relationships. But also it just makes so much difference where, you know, if you you have a child who you're you're dealing with who's come from a background that is has hardships in it, but you don't know about it, you need you need to meet that kid. And talk to them about it and understand that their take on something might be really different from the kid in your class who hasn't suffered those same hardships. I love that, Wendy. You're, uh, you're always about the relationships. That's, that's so great. Well, think about now, let's go to the yellow. What are some things that you would, what's one thing you would have teachers start to question about their practice? Oh my gosh. Um, is what you're, I would, this is something I do daily, is like, 
is what I'm teaching really the best thing for them, what they're doing. Yes. And yeah, and, and so I'm constantly, you know, this is one of the things I'm with my writing assignments, for example, I'm constantly asking myself is, why am I doing this? What purpose does it serve? Yes. What, how will this help them? And, you know, just to simply say, oh my gosh, because I had to do this. Well, Jesus, I'm an old man. Um, you know, and so, and, I, and it's one of the things I've started doing a lot of is um, I taught an elective on multi-genre, which I've really become a huge fan of, where I will have um, students respond to a question through multiple genres and ideas, like drawing pictures, writing poetry, writing a personal essay, writing an analytical essay and, and, and it's turned and it, what it's led to is are some of the most exciting student, you know, papers or, you know, multi-genre projects um, that I've seen in my 35 years. Wow. Like helping kids write in different ways, in different forms. Yeah. Or, or, or say, you know, God, you know, respond to a text, you know, it doesn't always have to be analytical. You know, it might be for the kid who wants to be an English major, okay, analytical. But for the other kid, it might be, you know, artistic. It might be, um, you know, so I, and I'll do these things where I'll have these kids uh, do, I'll say, you know, for your final project, you're going to do three of the four things. And one of them involves, say, writing a letter to the writer, writing a review of the book, writing um, – uh, are criticizing the ending or, you know, I try to get them to is give them as many different ways to think about literature as art in relationship to their own lives as possible. I love it. So your, so yellow, that, that, so your yellow light is like being intentional, like always question, is this having an impact? To what degree is it having an impact? I love that. Yeah, being, being intentional, but also being being willing to abandon your best, what you think are your best practices. Yeah. Be, being willing to just kind of say, uh, yeah, I'll give this a shot. We'll see what happens. Yeah, no, having that growth mindset. Not, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> what is your red light? Ask, what is your thing that you want to have teachers consider stopping us, like abandoning? Oh. Oh my gosh, I would say so much, so much of it has to do with how we treat kids um, more than anything else. Um, yeah. And, you know, I don't know how to get into that other than to say, um, you know, in my, all my years of teaching, I've seen, pe I, I, I've seen people who just shouldn't be working with kids. Yes. So my red light, my red light is, you know, that if you can't, if you can't treat children with joy, and kindness and with openness, you shouldn't be doing the job. And um, they're far, they're one, they're far smarter than we are. They're far more interesting than we are. And I just think if you can't find joy in trying to discover what each kid has to offer you, then get out of the job. I love it. Yeah. You're doing it for the, if you're doing it for the paycheck, Boy, that's sad because the paycheck isn't good to begin with. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I, I I think you know a friend of mine once said to me is that 
you know, he's retired now, but he said, your classroom is your bunker. And, and it's true. It's like when I go to my classroom, I go, I walk in every day with these just really fun, eager, you know, beautiful children. And if you can't get excited about that, gosh, um, you know, and then I go to a faculty meeting and like, oh my God, why am I, what am I doing here? But what's, <laughs> it's dealing with, it's the, you know, I don't want to deal with my faculty. I want to deal with the kids. So my red, my red light would be if, if you can't find the humanity in your students, get out of the job. Yeah, because we, because they definitely feel it. They definitely know the teachers who really care and the kids, teachers who are there just for the paycheck. And yeah, they'll they'll and produce I, the work for I see that all across the world. And you know, I, when I go to China and I work with kids, and they can tell the difference between me and somebody who's just speeding them information. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, it's just like I always I. I try, I, gosh, I have to try to, and I, I think I become a better teacher if I try to get to know every kid. Yes. And the other thing is with our writing, I always try to, I learn so much about them. And so I get to engage about with them because their personal writing invites me into their lives. Well, Lundy, this has been like my professional learning experience. And I, I feel like I need to go back to the summer program and just to work with you. And no, just to learn from you again. This is Humanities Institute. That'll be perfect. Ah, uh, that'd be great. I know that they have. A... Yes. Okay. So tell tell the readers, tell the listeners, what can, where can they learn more about the Harkness this method? Well, if they want to, we have a, um, a summer institute. Um, it's it, it takes place every every June um, on campus, and it's just a chance where we bring teachers from all around the country and around the world to work in humanities towards uh, learning how to teach at the Harkness table. We also run a week-long program out in La Jolla, California. So we have the one in Exeter now, and we also have one in La Jolla, which is at the towards the end of June. And if you're a math or science teacher, we also have the um, Exeter Math Institute, which runs at the same time. Okay. And it's, it's all geared towards around student-centered learning. Yes, they're using the Harkness method. So that's another thing to tell listeners. That it's not just using the Harkness for literature or English. It can be used for anything because it's really about kids creating their own questions from observations and then constructing meaning from what they understand, what they see. Yeah, and I would just add that I think our, our, what our math teachers do is by far the most unique thing that I've seen, which is they we don't have math textbooks. We have math problem sets. Yes. And so the teachers write their own problem sets. So the kids, they they have to learn math by doing problems rather than having a textbook that tells them how to the formulas or anything else. And I I think it's really, I think one of the most um, unique parts of our school. Well, Lundy, I'll conclude the interview that way, but I just want to say thank you so much for being part of this uh, experience and sharing how powerful discussions are. Like Hattie said of his, of his research, he said, this student-led discussions or discussions are one of the most powerful things we could do for kids, and, and you surely shared that with teachers. So thank you so much. Thank you, Don. My, my pleasure. Great hearing your voice again, and great to reconnect. I invite you to rate this podcast and leave a comment. 
Each episode takes three to four hours to record and edit, so your comments make all the hours worth it. And your reviews will help educators like you find the podcast. Now, onto our recap. The Harkness discussion is not like the Socratic seminar, because in the Harkness discussion, students are more interested in talking because they're answering each other's questions. Sometimes I also use the Socratic seminar method too, but as much as possible, I use the Harkness discussion method because I want students to develop this skill of reading a text, forming a question, and collaborating with peers to formulate an answer. I think to be part of a democratic society is to possess the skill of asking thoughtful questions. I know what you're thinking. Can language learners do this as well, even beginners? Absolutely, because English proficiency is not a prerequisite to critical thinking. Students who have been taught to be critical thinkers in one language can transfer this skill to another one. Actually, if you're familiar with Nancy Motley's talk, read, talk, write structure for literacy, I use the Harkness discussion method as my talk protocol for my beginners, because they can ask questions about the text and they can try to answer questions too. If you're in a dual language program, encourage students to have these discussions in their home languages, because the language used matters less while the critical thinking matters more. In the next episode, international educator Megan Dreyer will talk about wordless picture books. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. I'd like to share a testimony from an educator who participated in one of my online courses. Hi, my name is Mary, and I recently took part in the January 2020 Scaffolding for Ls hosted by Tan. It was a phenomenal course, to say the least. Really one of the best things I've done recently. Uh, best investment of time and money. As a teacher, I very seldom have people come up to me and say, hey, Mary, what's, what are you struggling with? What would you like a little help with? And that happened almost every week with each of us. Um, we would bring something that was frustrating, being it small or large, and people would help you see it from another perspective, help you see another way that you might tackle it. Or, but everything was always geared around helping our L's comprehend and understand and grow better, which I think was really driven home that there is no problem that we can't solve if we will just be willing to be creative and open to continuously trying. So again, I encourage you to participate and enjoy. Take care.